So while I've, I've known that we would be studying in Amos, and there are many great things that, that I've learned before reading in Amos, I wasn't really sure um, exactly what that meant for us, right? There should, be, um, there should be something I believe that the Lord already wants to show us and why we are there. And so a few weeks ago, the Lord showed me why we are there. And it is, it is within a few verses of chapter 21. So if you'll read with me, 21 verse 2 and 3. It says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. I wonder what we hear when we read these words that every way of man is right in their own eyes. Because that seems like something that is irrefutable. That in my eyes, in your eyes, in the world's eyes, what we do and what we think are justified according to us. I don't have many days where I think, oh boy, I am unjustified in this. But instead, I find myself in situations where I've made decisions and I've made determinations and I have set myself to something that I have realized by the Lord's Spirit that I am justifying what I want and I have not consulted the Lord once. And the reality is, it's because of what is said in the second half of that verse, the heart. So, each of these words in this, in this verse are more significant. Um, they are... Um, a sum greater than their parts, but each part is incredibly powerful. It says every way, and the word here for every doesn't just mean most, it doesn't do just mean many or several, it means the total amount of something. And then it says the word way, and the word way is, is incredibly significant in Proverbs and in Psalms because it's what is often used to refer to the Lord's ways. It's the same word that David uses talking about the commandments and the precepts and the laws and the directions and the purposes to, to kind of encompass all that the Lord would give to mankind to emulate him and follow in his footsteps. It means a way, a road, or a journey. It's a, a, ge a geographical direction, if you will. It's the word that's used as a road or when someone goes on a trip or to determine the way between what is good and what is evil. The next word after that that says right. This isn't just right as opposed to left, but it is straight or correct. It is good and not evil. So what the writer is saying is that every man is conditioned in sin to determine what they believe is correct and true and best in their own eyes. But to mean everything that's said before that is countered by what will come next. But the Lord weighs the hearts. He balances, he measures, he levels out what is certain in that person's heart. The heart we know is a word that's used 
in Scripture again and again, and it's not this, this seat of emotion. It doesn't get mushy or gooey or teared up. It is the, the decision-making organ, if you will. It is really the mind. It is, what, it is what makes us do what we do. It is what chooses to do one thing and not another. It is what determines what is good or evil, or whether to agree with the ways of God or agree with the ways of the enemy. God doesn't just simply look at what we have done. God weighs our heart. That should be far, far more concerning than just God looking down upon us and seeing what we have done or not done or the choices that we've made. But God goes a step further to look at what is in our heart because what is in our heart is what has allowed us to make the decisions or to have the thoughts or to do the things that we do. I've been marinating on this scripture for several days now. And every time I read it, I'm left completely speechless. Because for all the things I tell myself, for all the things that I represent to others, I know that God knows better. And not only does God know better, God knows my heart, which I don't even understand. Because we say that we want to be people after God's own heart, or we want God to change our heart, right? And I don't know how to do that. And I think that's the point that the writer of this proverb is making is that we are incapable of changing our own heart. If we could, it would be done through these sacrifices that he leads up to. These things where we simply try to make right what has been done wrong. Or we simply try to make justified what is truly unrighteous and unjustified he says to do justice or she says to excuse me to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the lord than sacrifice these words righteousness and justice they're not talking about our court of law and not speeding they're not talking about um what our laws or our government say, they're talking about the Lord's ways. And so for all of the commandments that we are to follow, truly the Lord is asking us for more than that. He is asking that our heart be purposed for Him. And unless it is, it will never weigh, it will never measure, it will never be level. And so our ways will always be justified by the flesh and not the spirit. So for all this, I am so grateful because I believe this is the context that the Lord would have us to study Amos. Not just to hear some words from an old prophet or study some, some great truths, but to seek that our hearts might be changed. Because there are many in Amos, many different groups, people within the body of God, people that represent um, David's lineage, people that think that they're doing the right thing and are all the while completely dishonoring God because their hearts are not for him. And therefore, their ways have been justified. So turn with me. We will go to Amos chapter 1. If you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 
1055. If you get to Daniel, just go Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. Okay, so um, I think that tonight we will kind of study some foundational things to kind of understand a little bit of what is going on here. Um, So the Old Testament has what are called um, major prophets and minor prophets. And I'd heard that for a while and really had no idea what it meant, but Amos is considered a minor prophet. And so the major prophets are known for their length and their, their broadness. So you think of Jeremiah is many, many, many chapters, and Jeremiah is talking to multiple generations, and he's talking to multiple groups of people. But the minor prophets, they're short and narrow, and they have a very specific audience. So Hosea, Joel, Jonah are very small in their total size in the Bible. Um, the prophets are, are really generally unpopular for study because they're, they have unusual prophetic language, they have warnings, and many would say condemnation, and they're tough. And so they're not very exciting to read for those reasons. But I love that the Lord would have us here to do just the opposite, to give understanding to these things that seem unusual, to give clarity to these warnings that have been given again and again, And for us to be called according to his purpose, that there would be no condemnation for us. So a place for you to read this week, if you would like, would be the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Now I know that's a lot because those are very large books. But 1st and 2nd Kings really give the the background for what is going on in Amos' time. Um you'll remember that there was initially a a monarchy, a united monarchy. So for 125 years from, from Saul and David and Solomon, the 12 tribes of Israel and Israel and Judah were one nation governed by one king at a time. So after Solomon, around the year 922, Israel and Judah divided from one another. They were no longer a united kingdom. Um, Judah was the southern kingdom, and it was much smaller, but it had Jerusalem for its capital, and it had the temple. Israel was from the northern kingdom, and it was the larger kingdom. But after splitting from Judah, Israel was cut off from the temple. So Israel's king established a new capital, and in Amos' day, it was Samaria. So after that, he established sanctuaries in cities like Bethel and Dan to prevent his people from going to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. So as we think through um, this huge period of time that we kind of compress in our mind, we see this, this great disunity. God's people called for God to give them a king. God reluctantly gave them a king. 
from then, these, these kings went in and out, turning from God's ways. We, we come to the, the, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, who commits atrocities. And these, these two areas of Israel and Judah are now completely separate. This place, Jerusalem, that God had appointed to be his place for worship and his place for leadership is now solely for those in Judah and those in Israel want nothing to do with it. We see this picture that we, we look back on and we think, that is terrible. But we are a world and we are a body that has become completely disjointed based upon opinions and views and power and justification. And so as we, we come into this world where Amos is, we are in a very similar place. So 150 years after Solomon, and I like to kind of have a frame of reference for, for what we're thinking about, 150 years after Solomon is really where Amos is on the scene. And so Amos and his ministry of preaching and prophesying was around 760 to 750, uh, not for all of those 10 years, but, but really within that period of time. It's really interesting because most believe that Amos' ministry might have only lasted a few weeks. A few weeks for God to bring a powerful word to an entire nation. So while there were many prophets before Amos, he was really the, the first like this. So we're not talking about Elijah and Elisha and Samuel, but we're talking about prophets that have now been specifically sent to Israel and Judah to deliver the word to people who have completely left his ways. Um, so Amos' ministry is during two separate kings. And we'll, we'll just go ahead and read here for a second. If you look at, at chapter 1, we'll read um, verse 1 together. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, so we'll stop there. So Amos is situated between these two kings, one who is in Judah, and that is Uzziah, and Jeroboam, who is the king of Israel. And this is important because many of the things that, that we can study about Amos and about these times, we know because we know who was king at this time. And it's important, and we'll, we'll discover in a minute why, although Amos is preaching to the people of Israel, he names who is the king in Judah at that time. So Amos preached and prophesied specifically at Bethel. Now, Bethel is where we talked a moment ago. Um, one of the kings um, after Solomon established that this would be a sanctuary or a religious center. Not Jerusalem. Bethel. So Amos was called to go here to Bethel to the center of religious and spiritual life in Israel. Bethel was... Um, the royal sanctuary where Israel's king would worship. 
So there was also a sanctuary in Dan, and there was a sanctuary at a few other places that were kind of spread out over Israel. But Amos is called to the center of spiritual and political power. Also there was the high priest, who was Amaziah. So Amos, as we read just a second ago, and we'll read this a few more times, um, Amos was actually from Judah. So we were talking a, a little bit earlier, Susan, about Oklahoma and Texas, and these are certainly states that we can understand that there is a bit of a rivalry between them, right? In a much greater fashion, there is a great rivalry, that might be one way to say it, between these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And Amos is from Judah, yet he's prophesying in Israel. Okay, so let's talk about Amos. Who is this Amos? Well, first, I'll say that there is little to nothing about Amos anywhere. Um, we're not given a great biography. We're not given something like Paul kind of in jest gives about himself, how he is Hebrew of Hebrew and he has accomplished all these things and done all these things. We are, are told very little and I believe that that is intentionally the point. He's not mentioned outside of this book of Amos. So let's read verse 1 again, and then we'll read another place. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep readers of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, so we're told from this introduction of Amos, pretty little bits of information. One, he is a sheep breeder. And two, he is from Tekoa. Now, if you were to introduce yourself to someone, if you were to introduce yourself at the sanctuary in Bethel, where the high priest was, where the king was, where all of God's people in Israel were gathering, how would you introduce yourself? Would you introduce yourself in a way that seemed right and justified to you? Or would you say simply, I am a sheep breeder from Tekoa? Because the Lord has shown him to say these things because they do have significance. Let's turn over to Amos chapter 7. We'll read just a little bit here. Who Amos shares that he is. He is... Um, he is talking to Amaziah, the high priest, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail about the context because this is for another day, certainly. But I want you to hear what he says about himself after Amos has really called him to attention before him to scathe him for the things he's been saying. And Amos says in verse 14 and 15, I was no prophet, nor was I a prophet, son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. This is all Amos says of himself. 
This is all we know about this person who comes into the king's sanctuary, the high priest's sanctuary before all Israel and will bring judgment and indictment and prophecy against all of God's people. These are the only words he says of himself. For now it's important for us to see a few things. He says in verse 14, I was no prophet. Now, obviously, he's a prophet because he is giving the words of the Lord and he is speaking on behalf of the Lord and he is giving prophetic utterance to the Lord's ways. But what he is telling them, and he says, I, was not, I am not a prophet's son. Simply for now, Amos is explaining that he's not a prophet like Elijah or Elisha. He has not been spiritually groomed for the Lord's service since he was a baby. He has not been brought into the fold of the Lord's priests and followers and developed for this service. Nor is he a professional prophet or a seer or one who's a charlatan and might use um, experiences of a spiritual nature to employ himself and to gain money. He's saying, I am neither of these two people. He's a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit trees. Now, it says he's a sheep breeder, which is a rare word. It's only used a few times in the Old Testament, and so it is different from a regular shepherd. Because some who were shepherds, shepherd could also be used as a spiritual symbol to say that they shepherded people. And so Amos is, is declaring that that's not in any case who he was. He wasn't hanging out around the synagogues trying to train people up. He wasn't trying to hang out with rabbis and do those kinds of things. He was out breeding sheep. Breeding sheep, managing sheep, he was kind of an overseer maybe. And then he says he was a tender of sycamore fruit, which is really interesting because um, sycamore fruit trees are rare and they take a special person. They don't just grab the fruit like you might grab an apple from a tree or pick up a lemon off the ground. They have to be nurtured like a rose bush. They have to be pruned and, and gleaned and, um, and taken good care of. So he's really telling um, his professional specifications that he is in no way equipped to give a word on behalf of anybody unless it is given by Lord God Almighty. So here's what we do know about Amos. The name Amos means a burden. A burden. <laughs> I don't know who he is more a burden on if this prophetic call was a, a burden to him, not in the negative sense, but in the sense that he could not wait to get the Lord's words out of his mouth. And so they were a, a burden to him in a sense. Or if he was simply a burden on these people who would hear this word. I've often wondered how this happens that God would call these parents to name this man Amos. But he did. And I guarantee you, everyone who met this guy after he gave the Lord's word was confident they named him correctly. For he was a burden. But that is what it is to bring the word of the Lord. That is what it is to be called upon the Lord for his purpose. That is what it is to not justify our own ways or our own thoughts, but for our hearts to be changed. It is a burden. And this is a key for this book. One who 
is taken from his humble country roots, picking fruit, herding sheep, to go before two of the greatest people in a country that is not his own, that he is not welcome to bring the Lord's word. He did not have any theological training. There is no mention of it. He is not like Samuel serving under Eli. He is not like Elijah getting a double portion and working with Elijah. He is not like Paul attending the finest schools. This is a man with no theological training whatsoever. What great proof we have that we need nothing more than the Lord's Spirit for His purpose. Our minds and our hearts would try and tell us otherwise. He's from Tekoa, it tells us, which is so important because it tells us he's not from Israel. He is from Judah. He is not welcome there. He is not from there. He does not know their ways. He does not know their customs. Tekoa was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem and Judah. So he was for all intents and purposes an outsider. So does everyone who is following in the Lord's ways feel like an outsider. So he was called from these common vocations to be a prophet for the Lord. God called him and it says, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. It doesn't say go and prophesy. It says go prophesy as if they are the same thing. Going and speaking on behalf of the Lord are one. To my people Israel. What is really significant about Amos in these scriptures is that his occupation and his background are not really important at all. The emphasis is not Amos is not on Amos the person, but on the words of Amos. So turn back to chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Amos the words of Amos which came to him from God. If we are to be people whose hearts are truly for the Lord, this is to be our call. Our name, our age, our address, our job, these are not the things that mean anything in the spirit realm. Our words for that matter mean nothing. But our words that are inspired by the Lord mean everything. This is the only biography that matters. So in a nutshell, what is, what is happening in Israel at this time? Is that they have tremendous pride as individual people and as a nation. And they assume that by being God's people, that would mean that he would not bring judgment on them. They have come into the promised land. They have been given a king. There's been some bumps, maybe. There's been lots of sin, maybe. There's been every king who has brought in Asherah poles or places of Baal. And there's been turning back and forth to the Lord. But surely the Lord would never, even in our worst ways, lead us out of the land he has given us. 
And that is the pride, that is the justification in their own eyes that those in Israel have. Worse than that, they judged others and they believed um, that they had that right to do so. To judge others for the ways that they were an abomination to God. Okay, so the next thing I want to do before we, before we kind of move into some study and some of these specific verses for tonight is give you a little bit of an outline of what, what we're going to study in, in Amos. Because um, I think even as you, as you hopefully do some reading this week and over the next few weeks, you can kind of see these things and they will kind of make sense as you look at them in certain groups. So tonight we're going to study what is the introduction of Amos. And it's pretty simple. It's only a few verses. It's verse 1 and verse 2. And, this, and then Amos launches into... Um, judgment, God's judgment for the surrounding nations. He has a word from the Lord for all the nations that surround Israel that are spiritual and physical enemies of God. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Now imagine for yourself that you are Israel and that you're hearing this word And Amos starts talking, and maybe you understand this is going to be a prophetic, difficult word to hear, and he starts judging everyone else around you. It would be really easy to go, yes, that's what I'm about. We want to hear the Lord's judgment for those around us. Next, Amos will shift to God's judgment on Judah and Israel. So in chapters 2 through 6, he will give prophecy and judgment over them in much greater detail than he gave over all of their surrounding enemies. And then finally in chapter 6 through 9, Amos has these great visions for the future. Visions that include God's judgment for those who remain in their ways, but a message of restoration for those who hear his word. I love that This is the message of a prophet. That it is not simply as many have misunderstood a message of judgment only, but for those who would turn a message of hope and restoration. Okay, so we're gonna do we're gonna do a little bit of study tonight over this introduction. Um and we're going to be in verses, we've already covered verse 1, really. We're going to look primarily at verse 2. So if you turn with me, we'll read verse 2 together. Amos says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn at the top, excuse me, and the top of Mount Carmel, or it just says Carmel, excuse me, withers. So this is an incredibly powerful verse. First, Amos pairs these two places, Zion and Jerusalem. And this is parallelism because they are the same place. For Zion is a hill and a mountain, 
but it really refers to Jerusalem. So Zion is a physical location in Jerusalem. It is a hill. Some call it Mount Zion. Some call it a hill. It is, it is a mountain and a hill in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a city that represents God's dwelling place. So one thing we're going to discover about Amos, and almost everyone is unanimous in their agreement, that he is a literary genius. He has these, this way of, of pairing words and symbols that would, would rival anyone we would read like Samuel Taylor Coleridge or any of the great poets of our day or Shakespeare or those who can pair words and bring them together to compound meaning. Amos, who is a sheep breeder and a fig tree pruner, has this way of making literary devices. And this is one in Hebrew that's a, a parallel way to develop incredible spiritual meaning. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now first we should realize that this is significant because Jerusalem and Zion are in Judah. They're not in Israel where Amos is prophesying. He is prophesying in Bethel, in the sanctuary that they full well know is not what God intended. He doesn't say the Lord roars from Bethel where you are. He said the Lord roars from Zion where he is. He utters his voice from Jerusalem where he is. Jerusalem is the, is the true sanctuary. And Israel had to establish their own way in Bethel. It has to be understood. These things were a result of evil and sin, but sometimes evil and sin have their consequences that we end up making our own way, even if we don't want to. Zion represents the kingdom of God. It represents restoration. Like in Revelation, we await this day when God will return and he will make for himself a new heaven and a new earth and a new Zion and a new Jerusalem. See, we await these days where these two things are going to happen. But Zion isn't just Jerusalem. Zion represents the spiritual Jerusalem. Zion is always used throughout Scripture in this symbolic, mysterious way. It is the spiritual Jerusalem. It was what God had planned. So spiritually, the Lord is roaring from Zion. And he is roaring to Israel to hear this word. We talk about the Lion of Judah and we sing songs and we're excited. But a lion that roars is terrifying. And utters his voice from Jerusalem. This is the physical place where the sanctuary is, where the temple is, where the Lord has anointed for his presence to be. So next, Amos. Amos says this. He says, The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So Amos is using some of his actual experience because he's a shepherd himself. 
he knew how the judgment of God would affect the land, right? The pastures of the shepherds mourn. Furthermore, the place that God had given them was their inheritance. <laughs> it is mourning, their inheritance. But Amos knew how it could affect the land, that if God withheld rain, if he sent plagues, if he allowed conquering armies to come upon that land, that it would make these pastures mourn. Carmel was, um, if you go back and read in First and Second Kings this week, you'll remember reading about Elijah. And um, he had this confrontation against the prophets of Baal, and where was he but Mount Carmel? Amos is reminding them that Israel had victory in the Lord over idolatry. He's saying Carmel is withering because idolatry is having victory over God's people. So I think that for tonight that we will we will conclude there in Amos. Um, I'm, I'm confident that these words that we will continue to hear will be challenging. But what I love is that the Lord has given a word that he wants to change our hearts. And that will be challenging. We are in a perfect time because Deborah is going to teach on Sunday about the Day of Atonement. And we are in this time that we are to be searching and preparing ourselves and coming before the Lord and asking truly not just that he would change our ways, but that he would change our hearts. So I pray that this week that you will begin to, to search with the Lord and ask him to uncover these places that are not just habits and actions and thoughts, but that they are places that are part of who we are. They are part of our heart. So let's, let's pray together.